to wish you a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow, whatever you do, remember that this really is the most expensive holiday of the year. Whether you eat dogs or hamburgers or rack of ribs, remember that it was all paid for by the love of Jesus. This is the day that we are designed and that we are to be deeply grateful for those who are on the course. We come to the next chapter that we will look at in our doctrine series today. We find our way to some of the most criticized writings in the entire Bible. God in these chapters will use nature as a tool of judgment, and He will make for us the awkward command that the peoples of the land can be annihilated. This is, these are two of the chapters, Joshua 10 and 11, that those critics of the Bible and critics of God most often point to. To try and make the case that God, particularly the God of the Old Testament, is that there's a difference between old and new here. To try and make the case that this God is not worthy of worship. Speaking about these chapters, the chapters of the conquest of the Promised Land, Richard Dawkins, the leading atheist of our generation, calls God a capriciously malevolent bully. Dan Barker, who is a part of the Freedom from Religion Foundation, has written a book entitled God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. Barker says this in book, speaking about these passages that we're looking at today, most believers think God destroyed the Canaanites because they were depraved and immoral. Although the Bible does not make that claim, they were killed and labeled evil and wicked simply because they did not worship Israel's God. Here's a group of people who did nothing wrong. They were at peace and secure. They had to be eliminated. The Canaanites were not the evildoers. The Israelites were. Now, the reality is that those comments are either academic ignorance or willful intellectual dishonesty. I want to tackle this topic head on. Because I think even among believers, I occasionally run into people that will admit that in this topic, what critics call the genocide passages of the Bible, the idea that God has commanded genocide, Israel was a tool to wipe out entire nations of, 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 of simple and peaceful people who are living their lives in harmony with each other and never did anything wrong, and God just wants that their only crime was they happen to live in the wrong address. <coughs> I want to help you understand that we don't back away from that conversation. These chapters are some of the most highly criticized passages in the Bible. So let's not skip over them. Let's see if we can make sense of it and come to some understanding of what the Bible actually means when it talks about these chapters. Now, we left off last week in Joshua chapter 7, the defeat at Ai because there was sin in the camp. The end of chapter 7, Israel deals with that problem. They repent, they remove the sin. And so in Joshua chapter 8, they re-attack AI and have a resounding victory. In Joshua chapter 9, there is an unusual story about a city named Gibeon. Gibeon was the capital of a particular region of Canaan, a fairly sizable and important city. 
Many use deception, which was unethically and was ethically not correct, but they use deception by presenting themselves as a people from far away to approach Joshua and ask him to make a treaty with them. Now, Joshua eventually finds out that he's been tricked and that this is not a city of people far away, but this is a major city right here in the promised land. But their desire at the bottom line, they didn't do it right, but their desire was, we don't want to fight the God of Israel. So Joshua, not only he makes the, the, the treaty, even though it's under false pretenses, but in chapter 10, we're going to find that Joshua lives up to that treaty. Uh, because Gideon was a very sizable and important city, the other kings across Canaan decided that they needed to band together in what we might call a league of nations, an alliance of kings, and they attacked Gideon to set an example uh, for those who might consider making an alliance or a treaty with Israel. That's where this chapter starts, and, and we're going to pick up right here. In at Jericho and Ai, Israel initiates the battle. Here for the first time, uh, Israel doesn't initiate the battle, but as this collection of kings comes to attack the city of Gideon because they made a treaty with Israel, Joshua, even though he was tricked into the treaty, Joshua lives up to the terms of the treaty and marches the army of Israel all night long to get to Gideon to battle the kings that have come uh, to assault the city of Gideon. What happens here is, instead of having to go king by king, city by city, God arranges for the enemies of Israel to all gather in one place. And this is going to be the D-Day battle. This is going to be the decisive battle of the conquest. Now, as we look at these two chapters, we're going to read every verse because, frankly, uh, it would take three hours for us to, to pull up, uh, a map out and follow this conquest city by city. What you need to know is this. Joshua chapter 10 is the conquest, we call it the southern conquest. Joshua chapter 11 is called the northern conquest. As Israel comes into the promised land, they cross the Jordan River, they deal with Jericho, and then they move north, conquering the southern half of, of the promised land, and then eventually moving north and conquering the northern half. That's what we have in these two chapters. It's okay if this sermon takes about three hours. Okay? Because, because these two chapters cover about six to seven years in chronological time. Okay? It's a holiday, I'm not going to give you three hours. I'm just letting you know I could. <laughs> Alright? Get your pen ready, because I'm going to leave you with a lot of verses for you to, to take and, and use on your own. And if you want to go back and, and, and try and uh, look at this in a little more depth, we're going to try to paint that perspective, and this is the context for everything that's going to happen in these two chapters. At the start of chapter 10, we have a king by the name of Adonai Zedek. Um, he's the, the main character as far as the king like king in chapter 10. And I want you to see here, he represents the attitude of all the Canaanites at this moment. Now it came about when Ananias Zedek, king of Jerusalem, turned to Joshua and captured Ai, and then utterly destroyed, now read that phrase, it's going to show up again and again and again, utterly destroyed in Hebrew is a phrase that means like that, completely destroyed, no survivors, everybody gone. That's the crux of the criticism. Joshua and Pastor Ai had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. And then the inhabitants of Gideon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. That he feared greatly because Gideon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because he was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Oman, king of Ephraim, to Hiram, king of Jarmuth, to Daphne, king of Lachish, and to Xavier, king of Dagon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let's attack Gideon, for it is a peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. 
It's an exciting example. But what I want you to see is, it says that verse 2, that he feared greatly. This is what we've talked about throughout the story. Only now we can get to see that the fear that God's enemies have of God, Israel's God, is a cumulative fear. He knew the stories of the defeat of the Egyptian army, the crossing of the Red Sea. He knew about the, the divine provision during the 40 years of the wilderness. He knew about crossing the Jordan River at one time. He knew about the fall of Jericho, the defeat of Ai. He knew all those stories, and they built one upon another so that he was increasingly afraid of a conflict with Israel because Israel's God seemed to be undefeatable. Well, here's the final straw. You can follow the other side. They made a peace treaty with Israel. So we're going to go and we're going to battle Gideon because we're going to make an example of those people. And this is going to be a message to all the kings across Canaan that they don't side with Israel. We need everybody on board for the battle that's about to come. And so they want to get him. I think you probably assume that because of the uh, unethical way the treaty had been obtained, that Israel probably wouldn't honor the treaty. Instead, what we find out in verse 10 and verse 9, it says, So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. Scouts from Gideon went out and found Israel and Gilgal and said, Hey, you know that treaty we just made? Well, we're calling in our, our part of it. That we're being attacked and we need you to come. Joshua honors the treaty and begins the first and most decisive battle of the entire conquest. Now, here's where the, the criticism begins. I call this divine judgment through nature. Look at verse 10 of this chapter. The Lord brought them in confusion before Israel, meaning this alliance of the kings, this league of nations army. The Lord brought them in confusion before Israel, and he struck them down in a great defeat at Gideon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Ephron, and struck them as far as Asuka and Machida. And as they fled from Israel, while they were at the descent of Ephron, the Lord hurled large stones from heaven on them as far as Asuka. And they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those who the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And here's what I want you to see. In this battle, they have a collection of kings and their armies coming to battle against Gideon. Joshua surprises them by marching all night to get to the battlefield and the attacks. The tide turns quickly. And those armies begin to retreat. In fact, they begin to turn and run away, and the Israelites pursue. It says here that the Israelites pursue on the ascent of that Quran. That is, they chase them uphill. They were in a, a, a valley battle, uh, battlefield, and as they went up the hill, you can imagine uh, the exhaustion of facing uphill against a fleeing army after marching all night to even get to the battlefield. At the point at which the uh, retreating armies caught the crest and began to descend down the other side, it says that God decided to jump into the battle. He does it, now look at this phrase, the Lord hurled large stones from heaven on them. This word refers to hailstones. These hailstones were significant for several reasons. Now, first of all, it's not really a miracle that there was a hailstorm. This part of the world, even today, uh, it is not uncommon that hailstorms. In fact, uh, fairly regularly, they have hailstones that measure about two inches in diameter. What's unusual about this is that this storm of hails, they apparently were of great size, not two inches in diameter, but large stones, the kind of stones. Large enough to kill a man if he if it hit him. They were large and stones of great size. They came to earth with a tremendous force, and the text implies that they showed great discrimination. That is, it was only Canaanites that died. All right, we'll come back to this. Let's get to the second picture here, and we'll talk about it first. Verse 12. 
Then Joshua spoke to the Lord on the day when the Lord turned the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said to the sons of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and move at the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hurry to go down for about a whole day? There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Here's what happened. They marched all night. They're now chasing or retreating army up and over uh, a crest of the, 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 the hills. And God has started the hills for Joshua realizes something at this moment. I don't have enough daylight to finish this battle. And I'm not willing to let this battle have those who escape. This battle has to be finished completely. So he does something remarkable. Now, this business about the sun stop. This is one of those miracles of all the miracles in the Bible that are the, the most highly criticized as being uh, impossible. In fact, most Christian commentaries even will argue that this is poetic language. That really what Joshua is saying here is that in the heat of battle, even the sun and the moon is fighting on Israel's side. And it's true that these verses in Hebrew are, are, printed, are, are presented in poetic form. It is poetic language, and it is uh, a poetic structure. But here's what I think about that. It says in verse 33, is it not written in the book of Jasher? The book of Jasher is an old history book about the events in the early life of the nation of Israel. It is not in the biblical canon, it is not included in our Old Testament, but it's referenced in a couple of different places in the Old Testament as a, as a, a source of material as proof that what's being said in Scripture is widely known. In other words, it's like saying, you don't believe X, Y, and Z happened? Well, go look in this history book and it'll tell you that X, Y, and Z happened. But look at the is that kind of history book. And what's being said here is not it was a poetic moment, oh, it was sweet. Joshua, now is not going to win in the heat of combat. But I'm pretty sure that it is not typical behavior for a commander in the middle of chasing or retreating army to stop and break down the poetry. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the events were recorded in the way form so that they became memorable and could be passed down from, from, from generation to generation. I don't think this is a poetic story telling us that, wow, even the moons and the sun were on Joshua's side that day. No, here's what I believe. I believe the sun stopped dead in the sky and didn't move because God gave Israel a longer day to finish the battle so they could complete what they had started. Now, you say, well, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about that. I mean, does that kind of thing actually happen? Well, this is what's going on in these verses. First of all, Joshua didn't just think this up on Okay? If I'm trying to figure out how to get more time to accomplish something, I will go through a thousand strategic possibilities in my head. Before the idea of asking the sun to stop ever enters my mind. Okay? Joshua didn't go back and wait for this. I mean, looking for the moment to try to make the sun stop. No, this is not a human idea. God put this idea in Joshua's mind. Here's what's cool about this whole thing Joshua clearly was acting under the authority of God. But in these verses, in this poetry, he speaks. Directly to the sun and the moon. He said, Sun, stop right there. Moon, don't rise. You know why that's significant? Because in ancient Canaan, the sun and the moon were two of the most prominent gods of the Canaanite peoples. 
What we have here is Joshua, under the authority of Yahweh, the great I am, speaking to the gods of the Canaanites, saying, You now serve our side. And the sun stopped dead in its tracks, the moon parked itself, and waited for permission to start. You really believe that, Master? Yes, I do. Those who object to miracles are simply trying to deny that there is a God outside the laws of nature. They said, well, nature didn't work that way. Well, let me take up my car. My car does what a car is supposed to do. You turn it on, it runs. And it will run until it either runs out of gas or until somebody turns it off. Guess what? I'm not a part of my car. I'm outside of my car. But my car starts and my car stops when I say so. My car is meant to run. And it'll run all day long if you turn it on and let it go. But I have full authority to start it and stop it as I see fit. What happens is, God is not bound by time and space. He's not walked into nature. The laws of nature do not tie God's hand. God is outside of nature. If He wants the sun to stand still, if He wants the ocean to stand on its side, if He wants a river to, to move back and get out of the way, we speak. Now think about this. This is not, this whole business about the sun standing still. This is not the only time that, that this kind of thing has happened in nature. I mean, we go all the way back to, to the, the flood of Noah. God sent rain, and He sent so much rain under His control that the earth was flooded. We know that, that it was not just that. He uses nature as an instrument of judgment in our days, not just the flood in the days of Noah, but also in the book of Genesis. There was fire and brimstone that fell from heaven on the cities of the plain that were called Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the ten plagues that, that were held over Egypt. We have all the miracles of Joshua and Moses from the Red Sea to the Jordan River to the man in the desert. All of those things are examples of God stepping into time and space to issue judgment on his enemies. I think part of the reason people want to go out into miracles is because miracles show that God is not only the creator, but he's the governor. And he is administering creation. And so right now, those that are on the wrong side of eternity they don't want God that's involved. If they want to be allowed, not at all, they want him to be distant and remote. They don't want him to be an ecstasy landlord. They don't have the freedom to do whatever they want to do, save the knowledge that God is somewhere else. God is not somewhere else. He's right in our hands. And he is the ruler over nature, and he uses nature for his purposes. It's a shame because even in Christian circles, Pulpits over the last two or three or four generations, even, have increasingly and deliberately ignored and suppressed these actions of God until we have in most churches a God who advances an unknown God. We have a God of love, but we never have a God of judgment. We need to understand that these miracles may be clearly evident that God's holiness is as real as His grace. His justice is as real as His mercy. His wrath is as real as His love. They need to be preached from our pulpits. Listen, it's lamentable and even downright dishonest for the pulpits in our country over the last two or three generations that have, I think, been largely responsible for the creeping corruption that's taken over our land. We have so morphed God into a mushy, soft, milk toast being. We have no fear of doing whatever the heck we want to do. If there is no sense of the laws of God, there will never be any fear of the laws of man. That's where we are. Divine judgment through nature. Divine judgment through annihilation. Now, this is where these chapters get really sick. 
from chapter 10, verse 16, all the way through the end of chapter 11. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I'm going to read a few of them because I'm going to, I want to, I want to address the main issue. I'm not here to trace the battle from city to city. It would, it would take a map and a long time to do that. Essentially, this is the storyline. Israel goes from city to city. We can find it on the map, and they confront those people with with their sin, and they act as instruments of God's judgment. Now, the southern conquest, I told you, is in, uh, it's in chapter 10. Uh, the, the northern conquest is in chapter 11. Look at, look at these verses from Deuteronomy before we read these verses in Joshua. I want to go back to Deuteronomy and show you the backstory before we get to, to the conquest itself. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we have instructions that are given to Israel before they ever go into the promised land. And these are the instructions that they're going to follow. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10 and 11, it says, When you approach the city to fight against it, you shall offer tons of peace. And if it agrees to make peace with you, it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and serve you. However, uh, verse 10 11. So what happens is this idea of destroying cities is not an indiscriminate issue. These are the cities we find out as we read these verses. These are cities along the borders of the promised land. In other words, this was the way Israel was supposed to approach those cities that they didn't yet know if they were enemies or not. When we get down to verse 16 to 18 of this chapter, here's where we deal with the cities that are particularly in the land of Canaan. Verse 16, only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave anything that breathes alive. Instead, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hittite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they will not teach you to do all the same detestable practices of theirs, which they have done to their gods, by which you would sin against the Lord your God. Now, that's the instruction. You're supposed to challenge those outside the borders of the promised land and see if they're with you or against you. But inside the promised land, God has given specific instruction that these cities are supposed to be completely wiped out, annihilated. Now, there are two purposes for annihilation in these stories. First of all, the first purpose for annihilation is punishment for the sin of the Canaanites. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But, but there is a punishment for the way these um, cultures have lived for generations, even centuries. The second purpose of knowledge is purging of sin for Israel. In other words, God is cleaning up the land. The land itself is stained by the sin of the Canaanites. God is cleaning up the land so that it is an appropriate place for Israel to live. Think about it in these terms. One of the things that happens at Evergreen every week is that following Sunday, before the next Sunday, we clean and disinfect our preschool hall. I mean, every toy is washed and disinfected. All the sheets on all the cribs are washed and changed out. All the floors are mopped and disinfected. All the surfaces are clean. I mean, one of the things we do is we get that space absolutely spick and span clean so that when Sunday rolls around, it can be occupied. And I didn't talk about it in the military since the war. That's what's happening in Canaan. The land itself is so damaged by the people that live there that God is not allowing them to just move in next door. Israel is being called to disinfect the land from its depravity and sin and wickedness so that it becomes a that Israel, as God's holy people, can live the way that He's called them to live. Now, let me give you some verses from chapter 10. We're back in Joshua chapter 10. I'm just going to read these verses because I want you to get a feel for them. And I'm going to read the, the verses. Uh, in chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 28, 30, 32, 33, 35, 37, 39, and 40. Got that? 28, 30, 32, 33, 35, 37, 39, and 40. 
they're being displaced and destroyed so that Israel can can take over the promised land. The criticism is that the God who commands this is a God who can be trusted. He's a God who is bloodthirsty. God who who, um, is petty and just uses power to destroy people in desert life. Reality here is that that is not the nature of God at all. That is misunderstanding of the one who has always attempted to impugn the character of God, to question the belief of God, the one who has been from the beginning of time the enemy of God. Let's go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the mother of all mankind has a conversation with the serpent. And the serpent says, Hey, I've been told you. Do you, you, you like the way you live? Do you like the way you live? And she said, That's true. Really Does she have any restrictions? Do you have a plant down on the land? She said, No, I'm actually, actually, we have to run the place. And this whole garden gives us, and he didn't say, We're not supposed to leave that tree over there. Well, that's, our, that's our one limitation. We're not supposed to leave that tree over there. And, and the serpent says, you know why you don't want to be that tree? No, no, I'm saying a little on that. He doesn't want you to be that tree because if you get that tree, you can get some more evil in the back of you. You're going to be able to see things you wouldn't see things. You're going to be like God. So he began to do it. He comes into a perfect scenario and he puts the crazy idea in the deep mind that God really be trusted. His character has a question of all of you. His motives are not pure. See, God told down to you. He doesn't want you to do that. There's some good stuff over there, and he doesn't want to share with you. But he doesn't want to share with you. He doesn't want to share with you. Every criticism of God from the Garden of Eden to 2021 is ultimately the words of the enemy through the woods of critics, saying, Yeah, God's really not, uh, everything he thinks is up to me. He's not really trustworthy. He's not really honest. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. See, let me show you a couple of awkward chapters in the middle of the book of Joshua that show just what God is really like. Well, when you did that argument, you were scared of the enemy, the devil himself. Through a thousand critics trying to change the character of God. So you're turning bold against the truth. Can you prove it? Yes, I can. I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about God and war. This is where I'm going to give you just some, some verses to take with you because we don't have time to go through all of this. But let me, let me talk to you a little bit about the way God is presented in the Old Testament. Uh, we have the God that, that most churches worship in 2021 is a God of our own creation. A God that's soft and nice and, and really doesn't have any standards that he holds us to. As long as we, you know, feel good about ourselves and we're nice to each other. That's about all that we think God is up to these days. The fact of the matter is, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. His justice and his love go together to make him a holy and perfect God. Here's what I want you to see. In the Old Testament, we have a couple of verses that I want you to see. Give us titles for God that really kind of don't fit the God that our culture tries to portray in 2021. First is Exodus 15 3. That verse says, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Warrior is one of the names of God used in the Old Testament. He is one who fights battles for justice. Psalm 24 8 says, who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Old Testament often uses military imagery because God presented himself in military situations as the God who fights on the side of his people. God chooses rulers to accomplish his purposes, and he doesn't ask for permission about who he is. Think about this. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, he mentions Moses. 
In Psalm 89, verse 3, he mentions faith. In Jeremiah 25, verse 9, he mentions a pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Moses, David, Nebuchadnezzar. We could sing that, that, that crucial song, which of these is not like the others. We have two great leaders of Israel and one pagan king of a pagan nation. And yet, in all three of those verses, God refers to Moses, to David, and to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. In other words, God is righteous in his movements in time and space are righteous, and he can use whoever he chooses to use to accomplish his purposes.